you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Alex is off tonight. If there's one thing that journalists have learned from Donald Trump's many legal ordeals, it's to always have a camera ready. And that came in handy today when members of our NBC team spotted this guy leaving a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., the same courthouse where a grand jury's been hearing testimony about efforts from Trump and others to deny Joe Biden the presidency in 2020. This guy you're looking at right here, his name is Gary Michael Brown. Think of it as G. Michael Brown for the moment. It's going to be relevant. He's the former deputy director of Election Day operations for Trump's 2020 campaign and a very important figure in the fake elector plot that put together was put together to stop Congress from certifying the election on January the 6th. Mr. Brown here even made it to the final report of the January 6th committee, specifically to a section that further explains the multi-state plot. Quote, by early January, most of the fake elector votes had arrived in Washington, except those from Michigan and Wisconsin. Undeterred, the Trump team arranged to fly them to Washington and hand deliver them to Congress for the vice president himself. Quote, Freaking Trump idiots want someone to fly original elector papers to the Senate president, Wisconsin Republican Party official Mark Jefferson wrote to the party chairman Andrew Hitt on January 4th. Hitt responded, "Okay, I see I have a missed call from Mike Roman, Mr. Brown's boss at the time, and a text from someone else. Did you talk to them already? This is just nuts. The next day, Trump campaign deputy director for Election Day operations, G. Michael Brown, sent a text message to other campaign staff suggesting that he was the person who delivered the fake votes to Congress. After sending the group a photo of his face with the Capitol in the background, Brown said, quote, this has got to be the cover of a book I write one day, and I should probably buy Mike Roman a tie or something for sending me on this one. Hasn't been done since 1876, and it was only three states that did it, end quote. All right. As to the photograph that I just described that Brown sent to Trump's campaign staff, this is it. It was sent with a caption that reads, quote, mission accomplished, about to Uber home. When Mr. Brown was spotted leaving courthouse today, a member of the media asked him if he was there to talk to the grand jury. He ignored the question and instead said that he was starving and looking for a sandwich. But about an hour and a half earlier, NBC reporters had seen him heading to the third floor of the federal court building, which is where the grand jury meets, accompanied by Stanley Woodward. Now, Woodward is an attorney who's representing several Trump aides, including Walter Nauta, Trump's alleged co-conspirator in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So make of this what you will. But for many legal experts, seeing Mr. Brown leave the courthouse today is just another sign that special counsel Jack Smith is continuing to look into the events surrounding January 6th with an increasing focus on the fake elector scheme. Now, whether that investigation ultimately leads to criminal charges, time will tell. Time, however, is already telling us some things, a lot of things, actually, about special counsel Jack Smith's other investigation, the Mar-a-Lago investigation, which has led to a 37 count indictment of the former president. Take a look at this. These are some of Donald Trump's truth social comments from this morning 
all sent over the course of an hour, many of them in capital letters. This one is particularly telling, all caps, quote, Congress, please investigate the political witch hunts against me currently being brought by the corrupt DOJ and FBI who are totally out of control. Stop them now, exclamation mark, end quote. The Post, besides being a flagrant call to Congress to intervene in federal prosecution against him is also a sign that things might not be going as Trump expects or hopes. Because by now we expect that when Trump blows smoke on Truth Social, it might mean that there's a fire somewhere in the Justice Department. Last night, Special Counsel Jack Smith turned over the first batch of evidence in the classified documents case to Trump's legal team. That batch of evidence that was made available in three parts include Documents obtained via subpoena, evidence obtained via search warrants, transcripts of grand jury testimony taken before grand juries in Washington and Florida, memorialization of agents' write-ups of witness interviews conducted through last month, statements from some witnesses associated with the case, and copies of closed-circuit television footage obtained by investigators. This means that Trump is now in a position to know the identities of certain witnesses that have spoken to Jack Smith's office, including some who were promised leniency and or immunity. We, on the other hand, do not know the names of those witnesses. And if Donald Trump listens to his lawyers, he will not disclose them to the public. Disclosing those names would put the former president in direct violation of a protective order filed last week by Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt. Now, another important thing we learned from Jack Smith's order yesterday is that the evidence shared with Trump's legal team contains interviews, plural, that Trump did with non-government entities, including the one that he had with a publisher and a writer back in July 2021 at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. This is the one where he reportedly showed a classified Pentagon document detailing a plan to attack Iran. Now, this spicy nugget is getting a lot of attention today because... We had no official confirmation that more than one recording existed. CNN is reporting that Trump's legal team itself turned over those recordings to the special counsel, but they they don't believe that, quote, these additional recordings are as incriminating as the recording referenced in the indictment unsealed this month, end quote. There's a lot here. Joining us now is Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security. She's now the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and the professor uh, and a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. She's also the co-host of the MSNBC podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump. Uh, Ms. McCord, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Of course. Tell me what you make of this. The Justice Department seems to have provided a whole lot of information to the Trump defense team. In fact, more than they would otherwise be obliged to provide and maybe even more than the Trump team uh, had asked for. What does this signal to you? Well, I think this is consistent with everything we've seen Jack Smith and his team do uh, since they brought this case in the Southern District of Florida. They knew that they were going to be on a tight clock if there was any chance of getting this case to trial before the election and really before it even heats up, uh, you know, to get to its most uh, significant parts next summer. And that means they had to be ready to provide uh, Mr. Trump and his lawyers with all of the discovery to which he is entitled. And I think they also leaned forward 
forward and saying, we're going to give, give even more than we are required to give. So they clearly had this all packaged up, ready to go, probably even before he was indicted. They were waiting to get the protective order in place, the one you referenced, that prohibits Mr. Trump or his attorneys from making public any of this discovery material. And they had it ready to go. So as soon as that order was signed, they could start providing it, which they did last night. You can also tell they don't just work nine to five, right? They work 24-7. And this is one reason they'll be able to say to Judge Cannon, if and when Mr. Trump and his attorneys try to delay things, they'll be able to say, we were prompt in providing fulsome discovery. We've even provided ways within that, like during like the surveillance videotapes, they've marked the places that are most pertinent. They've, they're, they're literally directing Mr. Trump to the things that they want to make sure that he sees so it's not a needle in the haystack and providing with all him all of the grand jury testimony of witnesses they expect to call at trial. So like you said, he will now know those witnesses um, and he will know a lot of other things, too about the evidence that the government intends to use against him. The, the only things now that he hasn't yet been provided are the classified information. And th that discovery will come under the auspices of the Classified Information Procedures Act after counsel are cleared. CPUC. So you are you were the former assistant attorney general for national security. A lot of people talk about this as the documents case. It's not really a documents case. It's a national security issue. And now that the, Donald Trump's legal team has access to the information about who was interviewed, um, does that worry you? Because a protective order for most people, if I had one, I would abide by it. Donald Trump's Donald yeah. Trump. Uh, he could break the rules and get in trouble by the court for doing that. But if he breaks these particular rules as it deals uh, relates to witnesses or the information uh, that is involved here, the consequences are more serious. That's right. That, those consequences, including being uh, held in contempt of court, uh, being ordered to show cause why he should not be held in contempt of court. Contempt of court can lead to civil penalties, including fines. It can lead to um, imprisonment. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a big stick to hold over Mr. Trump's head. The problem with Mr. Trump, as we've seen over the years, is he has almost un, an inability to control what he says. And so, frankly, if I were his attorneys, I would be reading him the riot act before I provided him with any of this discovery, and particularly before I provided him with witness names. I would even be thinking about ways, you know, to maybe talk to him about the contents uh, without providing those names. But of course, you can't really represent your client if you don't share with your client who the witnesses are against him. So I don't expect them to do that. But I think they'll be worried about it. Yeah, I guess the problem is if you anything that they do that's out of the ordinary in the way you you treat anybody else will be held against them. That's right. That's right. And, they, you know, they have a duty, an ethical duty as members of the bar to represent their client zealously. And that that means you can't hide information from your client. But they you know, they have a tough task to keep their client under control. Obviously, he's already out and has been out speaking and making admissions publicly, which can can and I expect will be used against him in court. And so he's a very uncontrollable client. Uh, let me ask you about the documents that they have not, uh, the top secret or classified documents that they have not handed over right now. You mentioned SEPA. What is the process? What, what, what has to happen here? Because obviously at the center of this case are classified and top secret documents that it would just be awkward for a whole lot of people to have access to and to, be know, to, to know what they're talking about. But this case has to be tried. 
Yeah. I mean, it would be more than awkward. It would be a real national security threat. But you're right that for the government to prove up the 31 counts of the illegal retention of national defense information means the government has to prove to the jury that the information in those documents is, in fact, national defense information. That means they have to prove that it's information related to the national defense and that has been closely held by the government so that it has not been disclosed to people who are not entitled to receive it. And in many courts, they also require the government to show that it would harm the United States if it were released. At least it would have harmed the United States if it were released to people unauthorized to receive it at the time it was retained and, and not returned. And so that means um, the government has to make a decision, and, and, and I'm sure it's already made some of these decisions with respect to those 31 documents. The intelligence agencies who own the information, who are responsible for collecting it using their authorities, those are the intelligence agencies who would have to give permission to the Justice Department to, uh, for whatever proof the department wants to use to prove national defense or information. Just saying it's classified, marked classified, is not enough to satisfy their burden. So that means that what's going to happen now is once the attorneys for Mr. Trump are received their security clearances, and those are already in, in train. Uh, Judge Cannon ordered them to begin that process immediately, and they did so. Once they are appropriately cleared, then the procedures for providing them discovery of that classified information will begin to take place. They will not be able to see that information in their offices or take it home with them. They will have to view that in a sensitive a, a compartmented facility, information facility or a SCIF. And that's that for them is probably going to mean going to the courthouse and being in the courthouse to review those documents. They won't be able to give them to Mr. Trump to take home. Um, so that will slow down the review process, but they will also be entitled themselves to ask the court to make the government turn over what they suspect might be additional classified information that they might want to rely on as part of their defense. And that's where SEPA comes into play. There are procedures for the government to provide discovery, sometimes to provide substitutions or summaries in order to protect national security. There are procedures for the defense to ask for more and say these are the things it wants to introduce in trial so that the government has the ability to say, Yes or no, we can't introduce that. And, it, and there are also procedures for the government to uh, work with the court and the defense counsel on how it is going to present its own affirmative evidence. And if some point in time the judge decides that what the government plans to do is not going to protect Mr. Trump's constitutional due process rights because maybe they want to substitute something. They don't want to ha have something admitted. They don't want the jury or the public to see it. Sometimes the government is then put to the decision. You either provide this to the defense and allow it to be put into evidence or you're going to have to dismiss that charge. Wow. And we, yeah, and, and, you know, there are 31 documents here, so there's right. some play. Um, if they need to jettison some counts, they'll have the ability to do that. But this whole process is going to take some time, and that's one reason why I don't think the trial date of August 14th really has any chance of holding. Mary, I'm glad that you were here to help us through this, because this is not the kind of, things we can, uh, kind of thing we can wing. Mary McCord, uh, we appreciate your time tonight. My pleasure. All right, we got lots to get to tonight, including Republican members of Congress drawing attention for all the wrong reasons, how the ringmaster, Kevin McCarthy, is trying to control the circus that is his caucus coming up. But first, to extend the circus metaphor, President Biden is walking something of a tightrope on his own tonight. We'll explain next.
you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. The event was called Howdy Modi. 50,000 people gathered in Houston, Texas to see an event where former President Trump was just the warm-up act. The headliner was Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. To the casual observer, seeing the Prime Minister of the world's largest democracy getting this kind of welcome, being able to bring out 50,000 people in Texas, to the casual observer, this kind of pageantry paints a picture of a beloved democratic figure. But that's just part of the picture. The mythology of who Prime Minister Modi is and what he stands for as a public figure has been carefully and often brutally laundered, and often with the help of the West. Earlier this year, police forcefully detained about a dozen students at a university in New Delhi. The students said they had their internet and power cut off and were prevented from holding gatherings of any kind by police who were in riot gear. Their crime? Trying to hold a screening of a BBC documentary about Prime Minister Modi. A few weeks later, the BBC's own Indian offices in Delhi and Mumbai were raided. Journalists' phones and documents were taken by police, likely intimidating their sources. So what was the world's largest democracy so worried about its citizens seeing? What was in this documentary that made India's government use emergency powers to ban it and get platforms like YouTube and Twitter to take it down for Indian audiences? The documentary detailed Modi's role before he became prime minister, his role as the chief minister of the Indian state of Gujarat, where in 2002, the state broke out into widespread violent anti-Muslim riots that left more than a thousand people, mostly Muslims, dead. At the time, the UN Human Rights Watch said that the po police under Modi's government were, quote, at best passive observers, and at worst, they acted in concert with murderous mobs and participated directly in the burning and looting of Muslim shops and homes and the killing and mutilation of Muslims, end quote. In fact, until he became prime minister, the United States would not grant Modi a visa to enter the country because of his role in that incident in 2002. That's the guy that President Trump had his quote-unquote world leader bromance with while in office, the guy who enjoyed those cheering crowds in Houston in 2019. The story Modi does not want the world to see is that he is an actual card-carrying member of a far-right Hindu nationalist party. And he and the more mainstream political party, of which he's the leader, have been cracking down on the rights of the Muslim minority and on dissent and journalism in general, for as long as he's been in power in India. 
Modi doesn't want you to focus on how raids on journalistic offices have become commonplace in India or how India leads the world year after year in the number of selective government-sanctioned Internet shutdowns that cut off the flow of information in certain regions, particularly in Kashmir, where a Muslim majority is brutally and constantly oppressed. Those shutdowns often coincide with events of ethnic and religious mass violence. Modi doesn't want you to focus on how his government has passed laws that make it harder for Muslims to become citizens, to buy property or get loans, or how his party ginned up a way to disqualify Modi's top political rival from even running against him. There are more than 200 million Muslims in India. It's nearly as many people uh, as there are people who identify as white in the United States. Modi and his party are actively denying that gigantic minority their rights while consolidating power for themselves. That's why U.S. leaders treat Modi the way they do when he comes to the U.S. That's why it matters how we treat him. But, and this is a huge but, there's also a level of pragmatism at play here. Because the U.S. needs India. The world needs India. And India and Modi know that. India has surpassed China as the world's most populous country. It's one of the biggest and most important players on the global stage. It's an economic powerhouse. And while Russia and China are fully authoritarian, India is still ostensibly a democracy, a problematic democracy, but still a democracy. Today, Prime Minister Modi was given a royal welcome in Washington. Right now, as we speak, Modi is the guest of honor at a state dinner with President Biden. This just a few hours after Modi was given the honor of addressing a joint session of Congress even posing for photo ops. And all of this puts President Biden in a very tough spot. While Trump was entirely reckless in office, fawning over Modi as much as possible, Biden will have to set a different tone. He'll have to walk the tightrope, keeping India on our side geopolitically while doing his best to not excuse Modi's democratic and human rights abuses. So how did he do today? Joining us now is Bobby Ghosh, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering foreign affairs and the former editor-in-chief of the Hindustan Times. Bobby, good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. I want to start with this. This is a tightrope for Joe Biden. It's just not an easy one. He's got a fight going on with China at the moment. He's got a big fight going on with Russia. You, you just can't be fighting with India, China and Russia all at the same time. Yeah, that's that's about the size of it. But I would push back a little bit to say just because you can't pick a fight with India doesn't mean you need to go overboard and fawn over the prime minister who has such a questionable record and whose values are at such contrast to Biden's values and to the values that we as Americans think uh, matter to us. It's one thing to do business with India. It's essential for the United States to do business in India for trade reasons, for geopolitical reasons. But that doesn't mean we have to bring the prime minister of India and give him, as you describe it, this royal treatment. That's overkill. And what are we getting in return? Well, there's a lot to be asked about that. We, we've seen with the war in Ukraine that India does not line up with, the, with our democracies and the democracies of the West. When it suits its interests or how it defines its interests, it lines up with the bad guys. It lines up behind Putin against Ukraine. That is India. And that is not a leader of a country who makes those kinds of decisions should not be given the VIP treatment at the White House. So let's uh, talk about this, because earlier this week, Joe Biden called Xi Jinping a dictator. 
White House didn't seem to like that he does this, but this happens every now and then. Joe Biden says what he actually thinks and doesn't really feel like it's being walked back. What's the connection here? Is it is it the idea that, hey, Modi, you can enjoy these royal welcomes, you can do this stuff, but you need to play on the right side? Is, is, it, a, is it a carrot and a stick kind of thing that's going on here? If there is a stick, I'm not seeing it. Biden has not described Modi as a uh, an autocrat, a wannabe autocrat, which is what he is. Um, there is a lot of carrot. We're seeing this in these images uh, that are going out right now. I'm not seeing a stick. The United States has, or the Biden administration seems to have taken the view that we have to cozy up to India no matter what. It has not defined what it expects from India in return beyond just the vague idea that, well, they're going to be a bulwark against China. India and China, India and China have very difficult relations. The countries have fought a war. They have uh, serious disputes over territory. That doesn't mean that India is going to line up behind the United States, though. Uh, America has uh, more than four million uh, Americans of Indian descent. It's a prosperous diaspora. It's a diaspora that uh, is involved in politics domestically and involved in some cases in politics in India. Is 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 American domestic politics to play? Uh, has any does it have any part to play in in the way uh, Modi is being received here? There's a little of that, certainly. Modi has a lot of supporters among wealthy Indians. And let's remind ourselves that the Indian community in the United States, one of the wealthiest diasporas in this country, uh, people who give money to both political parties, both the Republicans and the Democrats. And sure, uh, I'm sure Biden has an eye on that community as he uh, sort of gives uh, Modi this treatment. Modi is popular with a large section of the Indian diaspora here. That's certainly a factor. But the Indian diaspora is not a major factor in American elections, not yet anyway. Um, and there's got to be, you think, um, a point where American values or the values that Biden himself claims uh, to hold dear should matter more than Who's going to give how much money to his party? Bobby, thank you, as always, for your analysis. We appreciate it. Bobby Ghosh, thank you. Uh, still more to come tonight. Kevin McCarthy doesn't seem to be able to keep his house in order. More infighting among Republicans today, raising the question, who exactly controls the Republican Party's agenda? Also, who bailed and battled Republican Congressman George Santos out of jail last month? Today we learned the answer, but we still got a lot of questions. That's next. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free.
Okay, we finally know who's backing Congressman George Santos's bid to stay out of jail. The embattled congressman and serial fabulist has been out on bail since last month when he was indicted on 13 felony counts, including money laundering and wire fraud. Now, following that arrest, Santos posted a half a million dollar bail bond in order to be released from jail ahead of his trial. And ever since then, Santos has been fighting in court to keep secret the names of the people who guaranteed all that money to keep him out of jail. His lawyers told the court, quote, there's little doubt that the people who handled the bond will suffer some unnecessary form of retaliation if their identities and employment are revealed, end quote. Well, the judge in Santos's case disagreed, and today the court revealed the names of Santos's benefactors. But it turns out the people who paid to get George Santos out of jail are his dad and his aunt, which is kind of odd. Why would George Santos go to all that trouble to keep secret the names of two people who, for better or for worse, were already associated with George Santos? That strange revelation comes as Republican members of Congress continue to try and figure out how to navigate George Santos. Today, a Republican-led House Ethics Committee announced that it has issued dozens of subpoenas in Congress's investigation into Congressman Santos. Yet Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has steadfastly resisted calls to push for Santos's resignation. And that's probably because... Kevin McCarthy has enough problems on his hands trying to keep together his fraying Republican majority as things stand. Just last night, McCarthy threw his conservative uh, members some red meat when he allowed a vote to censure the Democratic congressman Adam Schiff. But that did not sate the GOP's caucus. Of course not. But today, Republicans all got together to vote on another symbolic rebuke of Democrats. Earlier today, the Republican congresswoman of Colorado, Lauren Boebert, introduced a measure to impeach President Joe Biden. A conservative congresswoman charged the president with high crimes and misdemeanors of not doing everything that Republicans want at the southern border. This was actually a policy matter. Republicans tried to avoid the embarrassment of attempting to impeach a president over policy differences by voting to send that proposal to committee for further review. But avoiding embarrassment really isn't House Republican style these days. So cue the fighting and the name calling. In the lead up to the impeachment shenanigans, Congresswoman Boebert got into a fight with her one-time ally, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Congresswoman Greene reportedly accused Boebert of copying her own proposal to impeach Joe Biden. C-SPAN cameras captured the heated debate over who could take credit for the bad idea that Republicans were actively trying to make disappear. At one point, Congresswoman Greene reportedly referred to Boebert as a, quote, little and then a word that rhymes with itch and starts with a B. Asked about it later, Congresswoman Green said that the reporting about her name calling had been impressively correct. Joining us now is Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Yeah, I knew that'd be a smile on your face. Uh, Good to see you, my friend. Thank you for uh, being with us. I guess there are a couple of uh, universes here, right, Michael? There's a universe that the Nancy Maces and and, and others talk about in which uh, they could be going. Republicans could be validly going at Democrats over policy differences and issues and inflation or whatever they want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then there's this world where Kevin McCarthy is herding cats around things that even Republicans don't want to do because it doesn't matter. It's 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 nonsensical, symbolic stuff that has no meaning, which Republicans were doing during the entire Obama administration, repealing Obamacare and stuff. It, It takes the it takes the eye off the ball of anything you actually want to achieve. So it is this world, the Marjorie Taylor Greene Boebert world, that is not only uh, the whirling dervish inside the party, right? Uh, just sort of knocking everything over and disorienting the members. 
but it is also the gravitational force that is pulling the party further and further away from just general, hey, can we just put up a bill to, you know, Anything. do something about healthcare? Yeah. Um, because the distraction is so great. The red meat is so real for a lot of the base. Um, they don't know how else to escape this vortex. And so they sink further and further into it. What we saw, what C-SPAN captured, were, uh, was basically Bobert a little bit, you know, peaked that, you know, all of a sudden Marjorie Taylor Greene figured out how to make herself the fangirl for the speaker. And probably if, you know, these things are what I hear, throwing her weight around on the House, which is <laughs> really con concerning to a lot of members, this is what this is. This is that tension. And what it requires is a referee, a ringmaster, someone who's going to control it. And that's not Kevin, um, because Kevin has a four or five seat majority. He can't afford to lose a vote. He can't afford to piss them off. And here we are. So here's a week, no matter how you feel about this issue, in which the president's adult son has been has been charged with federal crimes. So if one were to be united about something, the Republican Party could make the news cycle all about that all week. And yet we just saw what we saw in C-SPAN. They're fighting about impeaching Joe Biden over the southern border. But, and they're not even fighting about impeaching Joe Biden. They're fighting about who's going to get the credit for the impeachment. <laughs> so this is this is where it is. It's not we. OK, we all agree. We want to impeach Joe Biden. All right, fine. We'll, we'll put that off till next year. All right. But no, they want they, they want credit now. And so you're absolutely right from a political standpoint. You know, if I'm at the RNC, if I'm at the other committees, the NRCC and the senatorial committee, you know, I'm I'm gearing up the the political narrative around uh, you know Hunter Biden's problems and woes that are a drag on the president's bid for re-election, right? But instead, we've got you know this this the scenes captured on the floor in which two members who ostensibly should be on the same side right. are trying to uh, you know grandize themselves for power. Now, let's just switch to the other conversation. That is about sort of how our democracy works. This impeachment move was about mm -hmm. policy matters at the southern border. Right. You can yeah. you can hate everything that Democrats or Republicans think about anything. But this is not impeachment for what we normally think impeachment is. They are they want to impeach Joe Biden because they don't think he managed the southern border properly. Impeachment Im implies that there was some type of malfeasance in office, some maybe criminal behavior, something that is so uh, so much of an aggrieved a, a, a problem for you know constitutionally or otherwise that that is the only recourse. As you rightly note, this is a policy dispute. So put an immigration bill mm. on the floor. You run the house, for God's sake. You've been yapping your lips for how long about immigration and you can't even produce a bill? Put a bill on the floor. That's what leaders and managers do um, when they're in this situation. Take advantage of the of the not just perceived but real weakness this administration has when it comes to the border and lay something on the table that will cleave off some center right Democrats in the House and certainly in the Senate, right, that you can push forward, put the pressure politically as well as policy wise on the administration. But no, 
we want to talk about, you know, who gets to impeach him first. And we want, you know, you copied my bill. Oh, you know, sorry, B. <laughs> you know, Some what weird what, stuff. This is where we are. So there is nothing, Ali, to expect other than what you're seeing, because legislatively and policy wise, um, the administration knows the GOP's got nothing. So they'll weather the noise on impeachment. They'll weather the noise such as it is about Hunter. Um, and they'll go out and could keep talking to the country as jackhammers are hitting the ground, putting down new new streets and roads and sidewalks. That's something. Good to see you, my friend, as always. Thank you very much, right, Michael Steele, former uh, chair of the Republican National Committee. Thank you, as always. All right, still to come, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hand down a number of major decisions expected to cause ripple effects around the country. That's not the only reason for all the heightened interest in the court these days. The journalist, Dahlia Lithwick, knows all the ins and outs of the court. She's joining me next. All eyes are on the Supreme Court this week as justices make decisions on a series of high-profile issues before their current term ends next Friday. Today, the divided court ruled five to four against the Navajo Nation's claim that an 1868 treaty required the federal government to take steps to ensure the tribe's access to water. And we are expecting major decisions on affirmative action, student loans, and cases that could have big implications for First Amendment protections. But some of the heightened scrutiny the court is facing this week has less to do with its decisions inside the courtroom and more to do with the actions of certain justices outside of it. ProPublica is reporting on Justice Samuel Alito's luxury fishing trip to Alaska on conservative hedge fund manager Paul Singer's private jet in 2008 and Justice Alito's attempt to get ahead of that reporting by, rather than responding to ProPublica, penning an op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal to explain that if he hadn't taken the empty seat on the billionaire's jet, it would have gone to waste. That reporting is also bringing attention to another trip that Alito took, took to Italy last July. At the time, CNN's, CNN reported that Notre Dame's Religious Liberty Initiative paid for the justice's trip to Rome to deliver a keynote address at a gala. Now, during his speech, Justice Alito praised the group for its hospitality and talked about staying in a hotel that, quote, looks out over the Ro- Roman Forum. It was his first known public appearance after the overturning of Roe, and the justice took the opportunity to mock foreign leaders who had criticized the court's decision. While Justice Alito is facing well-earned criticism for these trips, there's another person who's played a role akin to matchmaker between conservative justices and billionaires. And that person is Leonard Leo. He's a guy on the left conservative activist, co-chairman of the Federalist Society. According to ProPublica's reporting, it was Leo who helped organize the fishing trip in 2008, invited Paul Singer and asked Singer if he could, if he and Justice Alito could fly on his jet. Here's Leonard Leo on that luxury fishing trip. He's the guy in the center of the photo holding the fish in his left hand on the right side. And remember this photorealistic photo painting depicting Harlan Crow and his pal, Justice Clarence Thomas? The guy on the left, second to the left with the steepled fingers, is Leonard Leo. Mr. Leo refused to answer questions about the fishing trip, but he issued a statement lambasting ProPublica's reporting on the conservative justice's ethical lapses. It says in part, quote, We all should wonder whether this recent rash of ProPublica stories questioning the integrity of only conservative Supreme Court justices is bait for reeling in more dark money from woke billionaires who want to damage the Supreme Court and remake it into one that will disregard the law by rubber stamping their disordered and highly unpopular cultural preferences, end quote. 
And that particular peculiar statement prompted this response from Dahlia Lithwick, a senior editor for Slate who writes about the court, quote, the hilarity of hearing dark money from woke billionaires from the guy who was connecting unwoke billionaires to justices for travel and influence. It's amazing the level of projection, end quote. All right, what's left to do except to talk to Dahlia Lithwick about this? She's the senior editor for Slate uh, and the host, host of the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, good to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having this me back. This story gets stranger and stranger by the day. But what we didn't get to talk about last night when we went in depth with the ProPublica reporter was Leonard Leo. This guy is the where's Waldo of conservative justices. He's always around. He's in the picture. He's there. So to the extent that this was not a random fishing trip that Alito and this billionaire went on, the guy in the middle, ostensibly the guy who's always in the middle, is Leonard Leo. Right. He's the travel agent who has no interest in reshaping the court, to be sure. He just likes traveling with justices. And billionaires. I mean, it's really amazing that quote you just read, the statement he gave to ProPublico talking about, you know, the woke, uh, dark money uh, uh, left here and the idea that he doesn't have an interest in reshaping the court. I mean, the reason the court is hearing those cases you talked about at the beginning, rehearing affirmative action, rehearing whether you can deny service to LGBTQ customers, that's because he reshaped the court. That's the why those cases are back. And just to be clear, the, the Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society prepared lists of judges that Donald Trump could pick from, pre-vetted, to say that conservatives will approve of these people if you pick them. Leonard Leo is not a casual observer to the shaping of the Supreme Court of the United States of America. He is possibly the guy whose thumb has most been on the scale. Uh, not only that, but he brags about it. Yes. This is something that he has been lauded for, feted for, given, you know, awards and praise. Don McGahn, so, you know, this is a thing that, you know, he gives elaborate interviews to the Washington Post, to the New Yorker saying, yep, I, I'm the guy. I yeah, did this. Right. And the idea that he is then in photos with people and he says, oh, we're not talking about right. the business of the court. It's super weird that I'm sitting here with Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crow and Mark Pauletta, but we're talking about sports. Right. I mean, it's just the fatuousness of the defense. Take the win. You reshape yeah. the court. You got these billionaires. You've got a big brother program where you match up a multi-billionaire with a Supreme Court justice and you have them lavish them with right. gifts and things. Take the win. Right. You did it. Right. Don't give interviews about it. So here's the interesting thing. Yesterday, about 6.30 p.m., in addition to the idea that ProPublica's reporting had already come out, uh, this uh, op-ed, or, or not the op-ed, but um, well, it was an op-ed by, by Justice Alito, had been printed in the Wall Street Journal. At 6.30 yesterday evening, they came out and attacked ProPublica, saying that they are trying to damage the court, right, by, by reporting on it. The language is very similar to Leonard, Leonard Leo's language here. The idea that by reporting on justices and their ethics, you are thereby damaging the court. Now, as journalists, that doesn't appear that doesn't apply anywhere else. Everywhere else, it's holding people to account. But somehow with the Supreme Court, if you report on them in a negative way, you're damaging the institution. Right. This is classic shoot the messenger, right? Right. This is all of those of us who actually really do love and care about the court and would like it to function with dignity, would like it to model sobriety and seriousness, the way we're not seeing modeled on the floor of the House, we're not actually trying to take down the court. What we're saying is abide by the rules. All Justice Alito needed to do was disclose. If he had disclosed... Let's make this... He didn't have... He could take everything that was given to him. He just needed to disclose it. Yeah, 
I mean, it's he can't. I mean, there's a whole fight going on about whether this plane was a facility for purposes of the of the statute, because he's saying that the plane was a facility, which is clearly wrong. But the fact is, when they say, oh, you know, Justice Ginsburg traveled and Justice Breyer traveled, we know that because they disclosed their travel. Right. They disclosed it. So you can kind of go around the world and eat chicken at bad places, but don't tell us that it's none of our business. So the int- <clears throat> so there's two issues. If, uh, As you have said, one of the issues with the court is that most people reporting on the court are there to report on the jurisprudence, the cases, the the, the background of, of why these cases come to be. They were, most times when I'm interviewing you, it's about the cases. Now it's become a little bit about the court, and that's a different role for a lot of reporters. So the thing that people need to understand is that there are ethics and there are the rules that they have to follow. The rules are very few, but we don't have ethics, ethics rules for Supreme Court justices the way we do for other federal courts. Right. The Supreme Court justices are supposed to be policing themselves. Right. Uh, it is there is no way to enforce this they say. And so they're each sort of a law unto themselves. And that's why you get Justice Alito kind of looking around for a dictionary where he can find somewhere, somewhere a definition of air travel as facilities, right? There is not the ability for them to enforce it against one another. And that raises the burden on them to be scrupulous and meticulous the way every other government official is about abiding by the law. And the other thing I would just say is that it's really essential that when they say that we're taking them down, what they're doing is making a monarchic argument about how they are above the law. We're not allowed to do that. That's terrifying. Dahlia, thanks as always. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.